So we are going to be starting the nephrology part. Okay, in the nephrology we include mostly uh, diseases of the kidney, but also we mention some diseases that belong more to urology. Okay, from the the lower part of the urinary tract. Okay, common conditions. Um, there has never been a section that is urology pathophysiology. Okay, um, we always include the most common disorders like prostate disorders, for example, in the nephrology part. But we're gonna start talking about the kidney, okay, which is the most important uh, section in nephrology. And in every lecture, we are gonna be talking briefly about normal physiology, some important aspects that, are, uh, that you need to know or remember in many cases. Today we are going to be, uh, I added some slides here that uh, will allow you to see the, the glomerulus, the nephron, which is the most important part of the kidney, the actual uh, functional unit of the kidney, the nephron. And there are some concepts that I wanted to talk, okay, that's why I made this drawing here. We need to understand how the urine is uh, made. There are different processes that occur in the nephron. The first process is the filtration of the blood. Okay, the filtration simply consists on taking part of the components of the blood. It means everything except the red blood cells and the proteins. So many solutes, bicarbonate, etc., are going to pass from the glomerular capillaries into the Bowman's capsule. Then this fluid is going to continue along the renal tubule, proximal tubule, loop of Henle, and distal tubule, and different process of reabsorption of the good stuff are gonna occur, and also secretion of bad things, things that we don't need, until the final urine appears in the collecting system of the kidney, and then the bladder, okay, for urination. And, well, uh, one of the most important things that has to happen first is that we need to send blood to the kidney. Okay, uh, at least 25% of the cardiac output goes to the kidney, okay, every minute. So it's a very important part of the cardiac, cardiac output. We are going to be talking about something that is called the renal blood flow, the amount of blood that enters and reaches the nephrons per unit of time, let's say per minute. Okay, we are going to filtrate a fraction of that blood. And for this filtration to occur, there are some forces that need to... Uh, that are going to interact there. We are going to see this later in the PowerPoint. Okay, and the most important of these forces, the one that determines that the blood is filtered and that we move material and fluids from the blood into the nephron, into the Bowman's capsule, is the hydrostatic pressure in the glomerulus. Okay, and this hydrostatic pressure will depend on this thing here. Okay, the difference in diameter between the afferent arteriole and the efferent arteriole. Okay, notice that the afferent arteriole normally has a larger diameter compared to the efferent. Okay, so you're putting a lot of blood into a capillary vessel and the exit of that capillary is narrower than the entry. So that creates a big pressure there 
Okay, some people confer, uh, compare uh, this filtration to what happens, for example, when we make coffee. In an espresso coffee maker, you need to create a pressure for the coffee okay, to be made. If there is no pressure, if you don't place well the device where the coffee is, simply the vapor will escape and we are not going to have any coffee, at least not good quality coffee. Now, what maintains this difference? There are many factors here. There are different uh, vasodilators, vasoconstrictors acting on these two uh, arterioles. As you may imagine here, okay, the vasodilators will predominate, and in the efferent arteriole, the vasoconstrictors will predominate. For example, the action of prostaglandins, and nitric oxide, okay, in this efferent arteriole, are very important to keep it open. Okay, and what maintains the efferent arteriole with a narrower diameter? Well, the most important thing here is angiotensin II. Okay, with this information, simply uh, with that information, you can predict what will happen, for example, to the diameter of these uh, arterioles if we give angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors. Okay, the efferent arteriole will open, okay, so more blood will exit, and we are going to reduce the pressure in the glomerulus, so we are going to decrease the filtrate, which is good for people who have, for example, hyperfiltration. Okay, we are going to be studying when we go to chronic kidney disease, that in the first stages of chronic kidney disease, there is a hyperfiltration. The kidneys are overworking. So we give AC inhibitors in order to relieve the pressure in the kidneys and prevent the sclerosis of the glomerulus. So we delay the kidney damage and we protect the kidney that way. And also you can predict what happens when we give NSAIDs to, to the patients. We inhibit the prostaglandins, so the afferent arteriole will constrict. So we are reducing the amount of blood that goes to the kidney, okay? And in some patients, that may have not very good effects, okay? Because we decrease the formation of urine, and in some specific patients that depend on having this arteriole open, that will lead them to a different degrees of kidney damage. Okay, so let's uh, go a little bit here to this slide so we can understand how all this works. Okay, here we have the nephron, the glomerulus. There you have the different parts of the nephron on the left side. Okay, you have there the afferent arteriole. Notice how it enters in the Bowman's capsule, forming like a loop, several loops, like a coil of capillaries. Okay, in between these capillaries, if you go to the right side, you are going to see cells that are called mesangial cells. Okay, these mesangial cells are cells that have contractile okay, capabilities. They are able to contract or dilate, okay, kind of muscle cells. So they are able to expand or constrict the entire glomerulus, allowing more or less blood to circulate in the glomerulus. Okay, the blood circulates here. We are going to start having the filtration of the blood 
performing the primary urine, the one that is collected there in the Bowman's capsule. The remaining blood is going to continue in the efferent arteriole, and it's going to start circulating in all of these the blood vessels that you see there surrounding the proximal tubule, the loop of Henle, and the distal tubule. Okay, and then when all the, uh, the material that is present in the urine is reabsorbed from the tubules, okay, everything is going to start entering into the renal vein, and then it's going to enter into the general circulation. Okay, there you have some uh, aspects okay, of the functions of the different parts of the nephron. Notice that the proximal tubule uh, is involved in a lot of absorption. Okay, sodium chloride, water, bicarbonate, amino acids, and glucose. 100% of the amino acids and the glucose should be reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. Like 85% of the bicarbonate <coughs> should be absorbed in the proximal tubule. Okay, lots of water are reabsorbed there too. Okay, some sodium chloride. Okay, there you have more functions, for example, hydrogen, urea, okay, ammonia, potassium, they are excreted. Okay, hydrogen is excreted uh, most of the time in exchange for sodium. Okay, every time we reabsorb a sodium, we eliminate a hydrogen. When we reabsorb a, a amino acids, glucose, okay, we are also reabsorbing sodium with them. There are co-transporters for sodium, okay, for amino acids, for glucose. Okay, and every time we do these processes, we are eliminating hydrogen as well. Urea is filter, then we reabsorb 50% of the urea, we eliminate some urea as well. If we continue <coughs> and we move from the proximal tubule to the loop of Henle, you're going to see that there is a descending loop, and then there is an ascending loop, and they work differently. Okay, the descending loop is only permeable to water, while the ascending loop is not permeable to water, but it's permeable to sodium, chloride, potassium, so to electrolytes only. If we move to the distal tubule, okay, we are going to see that there is also some absorption of sodium chloride, water, bicarbonate, and excretion of the same things that we excrete in the proximal one. Okay, and then all the, the rest of the urine, the final urine, is going to enter here in the collecting duct, and from there it's going to enter renal calyces and the ureters and then the bladder for this for being stored there and then eliminated. Later we are going to be talking more about the different uh, structures that we see there in the glomerulus. Okay, and we are going to try to understand how they work together in the regulation of the blood composition, blood volume, pH of the blood, and several other aspects of composition, calcium, Etc. that we have already studied in the endocrine part. But we have to talk today about the renal blood flow. We were briefly talking about this. Okay, there you have the concept, the amount of blood, volume of blood that reaches the nephrons okay, every minute. You can use any unit of time, but normally we use minutes. Okay, this renal blood flow will depend on the difference in pressure between the renal artery and the renal vein, okay, and this, this gradient of pressures is going to be divided by the arteriolar resistance. 
case, the same formula that we use for, for example, the blood flow in any circulation of the body. Okay, so the more difference between the arterial and venous blood, the greater the pressure that we are going to develop, the greater the blood flow, and the arterial resistance is going to be inversely proportional to the renal blood flow. So if we increase the arterial resistance by producing vasoconstriction, we are going to have a reduction in the renal blood flow, and if we decrease it by producing vasodilation, there is going to be an increase in the renal blood flow. Okay, and there are examples of things that produce a vasoconstriction or increase the resistance in the arterioles, catecholamines uh, or angiotensin II. Okay, that's a very important uh, mechanism of defense of the body. If we are bleeding, for example, we are going to release epinephrine. It's going to produce constriction in the renal arteries and in the renal arterioles, so we don't lose urine to try to conserve fluids in the body. And there are some factors that will decrease the resistance. So they are going to produce dilation of these arterioles. You have A and P, you have B and P. Every time we have a volume overload in the heart, okay, heart will signal the kidneys to eliminate fluids. And you have there also prostaglandins, nitric oxide, dopamine, medication that we can use in cases of shock. Okay, if we use only epinephrine, we may increase the blood pressure, but we may damage the kidneys okay, by producing constriction. Okay, okay. Also, we can constrict blood vessels in the brain. So it's not a very good idea to use excessive epinephrine in a patient that is in shock. We can use dopamine, for example, or dobutamine, that they will increase the blood pressure, okay, will increase the contractility of the heart, but at the same time will save the kidney, producing dilation in the arterioles so we don't damage them. So the kidneys are, uh, as some nephrologists say, the smartest organs in the body. Okay, there is a nephrologist, very famous, and he was uh, being asked about this, uh, uh, about how smart the nephrologists are, you know? and he was saying, well, if you, if you put in, in order all the nephrologists in the world from the dumbest to the smartest, okay, the smartest one is not as smart as any of the nephrons that we have. Okay, telling that the nephrons are really smart uh, organelles or, uh, or structures in the body because they are able to work by themselves without any external intervention, okay, while the mean arterial pressure is between the values of 80 and 200, okay, according to some books to 180, but for us the, that difference is not uh, very significant. So they are able to regulate or maintain constant the renal blood flow and the filtration in the kidneys okay, between this range of values. For example, when the mean arterial pressure is around 80, okay, this is the ideal, the optimal mean arterial blood pressure for the kidney, these arterioles are completely relaxed. They don't have to do any effort. Okay, they maintain in that moment the optimal renal blood flow that will lead to a glomerular filtration rate of 125 milliliters per minute. Okay, that is the ideal thing. 
Now, when the main arterial pressure increases, okay, there is more blood going to the kidneys. Um, this smooth muscle in the arterioles progressively will start constricting. Okay, there is more blood, so they constrict to receive less blood and maintain this optimal flow to maintain a constant uh, GFR, glomerular filtration rate. Okay, and of course, once the mean arterial pressure goes above this 180 or 200, now the kidneys are not able to regulate. Okay, they will respond as every other uh, blood vessel in the, in the body. Okay, so they, they lose the control of this uh, okay, glomerular filtration or renal blood flow. And if the mean arterial pressure is too low, they can't do anything in that moment. It's the autonomic nervous system, the one who has to take control okay, of the entire situation. There are basically two mechanisms that the kidney uses to maintain this constant renal blood flow. One of them is a reflex mechanism that is called myogenic regulation or myogenic mechanism. Okay? Every time there is an increased amount of blood, increased pressure that stretches the smooth muscle in the kidney arterioles, they simply are going to contract as a result of this stretching. And then we have one that is more difficult to understand, that is the tubular glomerular feedback. Okay, for this mechanism, there is a constant communication between different structures in the kidney. If we go back to this slide, okay, we can see here the area where the afferent and efferent arterioles meet. Okay, notice that there we have also Okay, the distal convoluted tubule, okay, very close relationship with them. And we have cells that are called the juxtaglomerular cells. And within the wall of the distal tubule, we have the macula densa. These macula densa cells are constantly monitoring the composition of the urine in the distal tubule. And depending on the amount of sodium and chloride that is passing through the distal tubule, they are going to release different chemicals that will either constrict or dilate the afferent arteriole mainly. That means if there is too much sodium reaching the macula densa, they are going to start producing substances that produce constriction of the afferent arteriole to reduce the formation of urine. So they are going to start receiving less amount of sodium. Okay, trying to maintain a constant glomerular filtration rate. There you have a diagram that shows these uh, levels or the range in which the kidney autoregulates the renal blood flow. You have below the values of the mean arterial pressure. Okay, and there you have a representation of how okay, the optimal pressure is 80, smooth muscle relaxed, and as we increase the mean arterial pressure, okay, you see how the smooth muscle gradually is more constricted, more constricted, more constricted, okay, until the value of 200, okay, in which the, the, the blood flow will increase at the same rate okay, of the blood pressure. Yeah, the kidneys at this point are unable to regulate. The same thing for levels below 8. Okay, the, the renal blood flow is going to 
continue at the same rate that the, mean that, that the systemic blood flow or mean arterial pressure does. In that moment, the kidney is not responsible anymore. In that moment, the autonomic nervous system takes control of this. So let's try to understand uh, what is the glomerular filtration rate. What is glomerular filtration? Okay, filtrate is the amount of fluid that passes through the filtration barrier. Okay, we are going to be seeing the function and the components of this filtration barrier. So it's the fluid that passes through this barrier, everything in the blood, minus the red blood cells and the proteins, more importantly albumin, but also immunoglobulins, HDL, LDL, all of these proteins or lipoproteins of the blood. Normally the filtration rate is 125 milliliters per minute. That is ideal, that is optimal. Of course with age this decreases. Okay, and in people who have a chronic kidney disease, this is going to decrease even more. And imagine that we say 125 milliliters, and for us to be on dialysis, that meaning that the kidneys are not working or doing anything, um, the glomerular filtration rate has to be below 15 milliliters per minute. So we have a lot. Okay, we have a lot of... Uh, room there for losing some of the function of the kidney and live perfectly fine until we are 100 years old, 105, 100, I don't know, the amount of years that we can live if nothing happens. This filtration will depend, we are going to see a diagram later, on physical forces that are called startling forces. Okay, basically the hydrostatic pressure at both sides of the filtration membrane that means the capillaries and the Bowman space. And then the oncotic pressure, of course, at either side of the filtration barrier. Oncotic pressure is given by the amount of albumin, okay, that form the, that is the, the force that in the blood, for example, attracts the water into the blood vessel. So the oncotic pressure of the blood is the main force that opposes filtration while the hydrostatic pressure of the blood is the main force that determines or favors filtration. We are going to see that in the diagram later. Now we are going to try to understand the function of the different components of the filtration barrier. There are three main components. It's a barrier that is made of three layers. First layer is the, the endothelium. So these endothelial cells of the glomerular capillaries they are fenestrated, so they have tiny holes okay, that prevent the passage of red blood cells from the blood into the, in, into the Bowman space. But these fenestrations don't block, for example, the proteins. Okay, red blood cells are too big to pass, but proteins and everything else move freely okay, across this fenestration. However, we have other things there. We have the basement membrane of the capillaries that also have tiny pores. Okay, this basement membrane is a gel-like layer made of extracellular matrix and collagen. Okay, and this uh, gel-like layer has a negative charge, so it's, an, it's anionic, an, 
a layer, negative charges that will repel the proteins. Proteins are also, also having negative charge, so they are unable to pass through. They may pass because of the, uh, of the size of, the, of these fenestrations, but they are going to be repelled by these negative charges. And also, the pores in the basement membrane are very tiny. Okay, so the big proteins like albumin can't pass. Other proteins that are smaller, for example, immunoglobulins might pass through the tiny holes, but they're going to be repelled by the negative charges. Okay, and if some of them may uh, try to pass, we have another layer on the other side, which is the epithelial membrane of the Bowman's capsule. Okay, the Bowman's capsule have an endothelial layer of cells that we call podocytes, okay, that have some extensions that form like feet, okay, that are wrapped around the capillaries, uh, around this glomerulus, and they, uh, these epithelial cells also have negative charges. Okay, they have a glycocalyx with glycosaminoglycans and all of these hyaluron uh, hyaluronic acid, etc., which are negative uh, compounds. Okay, so we have many, many layers of negative charges that will repel the proteins, large and small, uh, from passing. That's why we normally shouldn't find any protein or red blood cells or white blood cells in the urine. Now, amino acids may pass. Okay, free amino acids will pass, but they are going to be reabsorbed, 100% of them, in the proximal convoluted tubule. But there you have exactly the same uh, slide, larger here, cross-section of the glomerulus. You can see there in yellow the, uh, the endothelium with the fenestrations. Okay, then uh, you have in blue the basement membrane, and you have like in pink these podocytes with the food processes okay, that wrap around these uh, capillaries preventing the leakage of any of these good things. And again, the uh, mesangial cells that will open up or shrink the glomerulus if we need to filtrate more or less of this blood form more or less urine okay, to regulate the composition of the blood. And here you have the uh, Starling forces. Okay, notice that there is one force that pushes the fluids out, okay, that is the capillary hydrostatic pressure, and there are two forces that oppose the filtration, okay, the plasma oncotic pressure, albumin levels, and the Bowman space hydrostatic pressure. Okay, of course, if we have filtration, it's because the capillary hydrostatic pressure is larger than the sum of the Bowman space hydrostatic pressure and the plasma oncotic pressure. However, if we have any variation okay, in these forces, for example, a reduction, important reduction in the capillary hydrostatic pressure, that means the mean arterial pressure goes below uh, 60 or 50, okay, the hydrostatic pressure is going to be too low that we are not going to produce any urine. Okay? Or if we have very little amount of proteins in the blood, so the oncotic pressure goes down, we are going to filtrate more than normally. 
okay, or if there is an increase in the Bowman space hydrostatic pressure, okay, there can be a moment when these two pressures equilibrate. Imagine someone who has a, only one kidney and they have a kidney stone in the ureter. They are producing urine, but the urine doesn't move to the bladder. So we are going to have an increase in the pressure in the Bowman's capsule. There is going to be a moment when the hydrostatic pressure at both sides are the same and no filtration occurs. Okay. And theoretically, if we have even more increase in the hydrostatic pressure in the urine side, in the Bowman's capsule, urine could go back to the blood. Okay, that is theoretically. Of course, that rare, very, very rarely happens in real life. Now, if we continue moving uh, in the nephron, uh, we have this uh, loop of Henle. Remember I told you on the descending side, the descending loop, okay, these cells are only permeable to water, okay, and on the ascending loop, the cells are permeable to electrolytes, sodium chloride and potassium, not to water. Okay, and that is a very important feature of this loop of Henle that contributes to the regulation of the plasma composition and osmolarity. Okay, there is a mechanism that is called the countercurrent multiplier system. Okay, I think I put a couple of videos in the note if you want to see this in, in motion. And this is going to help us to understand certain things. Okay, for example, notice these numbers. Okay, when you have the blood in the glomerular capillaries, it normally has an osmolarity that is around 290. That is the normal osmolality of the blood. There they use the 300 to make it easier to understand. Okay, when we obtain the filtrate, you see this first urine there in the proximal tubule, it, is, it has the same osmolarity of the plasma. Okay, they are isoosmolar. Okay, same osmolarity, isoosmolar. The primary urine moves across the proximal tubule, notice the osmolarity is still the same, 300. And then it starts going down, okay, the distal part of the proximal tubule that is also known as the thick descending limb. And notice what starts to happen there. The water starts moving from the urine into the blood, or into the interstitial space in this case, and then from there to the blood. Why that happens? Simply, if you remember what osmo osmosis is, water is going to move from the place of lower to higher osmolarity. Okay? Normally, in the medulla of the kidneys, where the loop of Henle is, there is a very high osmolarity as we, as we move down. Okay? In a human kidney, the osmolarity at the end of the medulla is around 1,200. Okay, if you go to some animals that live in the desert, for example, camels, etc., they have extremely long loops of Henle, and you may reach an osmolarity down there of 1,800 or 2,000. That is what allows them to be without drinking any water for such a long time. They almost take back all the water from the urine. So notice that water goes out, and as water moves from the tubule into the the interstitial space, the osmolarity of the urine increases because we are taking all the water from there, okay? When the urine reaches the 
lowest part, it has a very high osmolality of 1200, and then starts moving up. And now water is not going to be reabsorbed anymore. Now what is going to be re uh, reabsorbed is electrolytes. Okay, sodium chloride, sodium chloride, sodium chloride. At the same time, potassium, urea. Okay, they are not represented there, but they are also being reabsorbed. So the osmolality of the urine starts decreasing because now it's mostly water. And we are taking back the electrolytes that we need. And when it reaches the upper part, or the proximal part of the distal tubule, notice how low the osmolality is. 100. Okay, that is the area where we have the lowest osmolality in the urine. Okay, and every day, from 18 to 20 liters of urine reach this point. Okay, so we produce between 18 and 20 liters of very diluted urine that reaches the distal tubule every day. So what happens? Why we don't urinate 18 or 20 liters of urine? of very diluted urine, because from that point on, we are going to start having the action of antidiuretic hormone, okay, that will allow us to recover the 18 liters, well, not all of them. We have to urinate at least one, one and a half, or two liters, depending on how much water we drink, okay? In the distal tubule and collecting duct, we are going to have the action of antidiuretic that will insert aquaporins in the collecting ducts, and you have the, it's not represented, but the collecting duct is in this area. If you insert aquaporins here, since you have this very high osmolality that is established in the medulla of the kidney, all this water is going to be reabsorbed. So we produce one liter, one liter and a half, or two liters of urine. Okay? What happens in diabetes insipidus? We don't have the aquaporins because ADH is not acting or receptors don't work, and we urinate the 18 liters of a very diluted urine, okay, 100 uh, milliosmoles, okay? Of course, it will depend on different things. Yes. Some people, there is not, not an absolute uh, deficiency. Some people, there is a relative deficiency, okay? So they are gonna have, they are not gonna urinate 18 liters and may have some more osmolality than that. So you have here some uh, pictures that remind you about the action of ADH. I know you have this very clear, okay, from past lectures. We have, uh, if we have an increase in osmolality in the blood, of course, antidiuretic hormone is gonna be released to dilute the plasma that will produce a concentration of the urine. Okay, if there is any variation in blood pressure, antidiuretic hormone is also gonna act. Okay, notice how, how when there is a decrease in blood volume or pressure, we have an increase in antidiuretic. If the blood pressure increases, we don't produce antidiuretic. We don't want it to contribute even more to the blood pressure. Okay, here we have some good diagrams that help you to see in context okay, how different responses, different mechanisms of the body work. For example, when there is a volume expansion or a volume contraction, 
So we have a volume overload or we are dehydrated or hypovolemic. Okay, when there is a volume expansion, there is that you have several mechanisms, for example, uh, there is a decrease in the sympathetic activity. No more epinephrine will allow the opening up of the arterioles in the kidney. We need to eliminate all that excess volume. Okay, we are going to have a decrease in the sodium reabsorption. So sodium takes water away. We are going to have a no production of renin. We don't want uh, any aldosterone around uh, trying to reabsorb water. So we are going to shut, uh, shut down all of these mechanisms that normally allow us to retain water. Okay, so we are going to have at the end more sodium and water excretion. Okay, the most important thing here is the action of ANP, BNP, produced by the heart. Okay, AMP, BNP are going to act okay, to decrease the production of antidiuretic and also are going to counteract the actions of aldosterone in the kidney. So we eliminate sodium, eliminate water, and we reestablish the volume so the heart doesn't have to work too much. And at the same time, protecting the lungs. Of course, the heart can handle all this excess fluid. The lungs are going to pay for that. Volume contraction is the contrary. Okay, notice that we don't produce AMP when we are dehydrated. Okay, and there is an increase in the sympathetic activity, increased renin. Okay, this uh, is going to produce uh, the sympathetic activity, constriction of the arterioles in the kidneys, so we are going to produce less urine, reduction in the GFR. Okay, when you have a reduction in the GFR, the urine in the tubule circulates more slowly. And this more slow, this slow uh, circulation of the urine in the tubules gives time to the body to reabsorb more sodium. Okay, this reabsorption of sodium is going to take water into the body. Okay, if any water and sodium wants to escape, we have aldosterone at the end taking back sodium and water, trying to reestablish the blood pressure. Many different things working together in response to dehydration, hypovolemia. Okay, raining is a mechanism that you need to know perfectly. Remember, this has many applications, not only in pathophysiology, also in pharmacology. Here you have there different stimuli that either stimulate or inhibit renin release. Okay, renin release stimulated by decreased blood pressure or, or volume. And you have there uh, the kidney, these uh, structure, these juxtaglomerular cells, they have receptors, beta-1 adrenergic receptors. So we have the sympathetic nerves directly stimulating the release of renin from there. Okay, so we don't have to wait for the blood pressure to go down or the blood volume to go down. Sympathetic nervous system or any sympathetic sympathoadrenergic drug okay, will stimulate the production of renin and may lead to an increase in the blood pressure. Beta-1 adrenergic drugs, for example. And renin is a mechanism that you, I'm sure you have studied too many times to not remember, no? angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, okay, conversion. Uh, we usually say in the lungs, but this happens everywhere in the body. 
Okay, almost every endothelial cell has ACE receptors or ACE uh, angiotensin converting enzyme. Okay, angiotensin will produce notice vasoconstriction, will produce an increase in the sodium uh, and water reabsorption. Okay, in the proximal tubule, it's gonna uh, uh, stimulate that. And will, will stimulate the adrenal cortex to produce aldosterone. That will contribute to more sodium reabsorption in the more distal parts of the neck. Okay, so notice how angiotensin to acts on the proximal tubule and aldosterone on the distal tubule. We want to reabsorb from everywhere. On the contrary, okay, we don't have a, a sympathetic stimulation okay, or A and B or increased blood pressure or volume. Okay, all of these things will inhibit the production of renin. And the, the result is going to be exactly the contrary. Decreased reabsorption of sodium and water, no vasoconstriction, and no aldosterone production. Okay, that's the physiology that we need for this first part. Okay, we are going to be talking in this uh, first part of acute uh, kidney failure. Here you have more details about the mechanisms of renin release or and regulation and more focalized in these macula densa and juxtaglomerular cells. You notice that you have the sympathetic nerve mechanism, beta-1 adrenergic nerve stimulating renin directly. Okay, if there is an increase in sodium concentration in the distal tubule, increasing the sodium and chloride delivery to the distal tubule, okay, body thinks we are losing sodium, that will inhibit the, the, the renin release, decrease sodium chloride, will promote renin release, so we need to get some sodium back. And the baroreceptor mechanism, there are some baroreceptors in the afferent arteriole. We have increased pressure that will inhibit renin release. And the contrary, a decreased pressure will promote renin release from there. Um, well, let's have a break, okay? Uh, so before starting, have a break until 11.05. is the AKI today. Okay, chronic kidney injury or disease is going to be more the topic of the next encounter. Okay, this is a condition that was known as 
acute kidney failure in the past, but you know, we know nowadays that failure is not very accurate because many people recover, okay, and don't have any uh, uh, clinically important loss of the kidney function when they have an episode of AKI. Okay, by any rapid decline in the kidney function, okay, in the glomerular filtration rate that we can estimate by using different values, the creatinine, the BUN, okay, and other factors like the amount of sodium in the urine and other uh, factors in the uh, blood tests. Um, that is accompanied usually by a defect or impaired microcirculation in the kidneys. The different parts of the kidney may be affected, the glomerulus or the tubules or the interstitial space, okay, that may lead to sometimes important necrosis and a reduced renal blood flow. Okay, you have in the notes the clinical criteria that are good for clinical medicine. Okay, we typically don't use these things in pathophysiology. But any patient that has what we call oliguria or anuria, no urine, so they have less, or they produce less than 0 0.5 milliliters uh, per kilogram okay, in six hours, or they have an increase in the creatinine in 0 0.3, in 48 hours, or one point times the basal creatinine in within a week, that is considered acute kidney injury. Of course, you need to have the value of the previous creatinine. You may receive a patient with the creatinine, I don't know, 1.8, and you don't, you don't, you say, okay, this is above normal, but I don't know if this is an AKI because I don't know how the creatinine was yesterday or in the past week. Okay, we need to compare. However, the clinical presentation is important. If they have what we call uremia, so very elevated BUN, creatinine, uric acid, the urea, all of these things, and potassium phosphate, well, we may say this patient is in, in kidney failure. Maybe the only thing I, we can do now is a, is a dialysis. Okay? Mostly if they have hyperkalemia and they have electrocardiographic abnormalities. So there are different causes, okay? Some of them are uh, due to not, uh, a kidney not receiving enough blood. For example, hypotension, okay? Severe hypotension, hypotensive shock, hemorrhage, severe dehydration, or constriction of the renal arteries, or people who develop renal artery stenosis as a result of hyperplasia of the muscular layer or atherosclerosis, okay, during uh, different uh, types of shock, for example, surgery or sepsis that can produce another type of shock are examples of causes. And also when we use nephrotoxic agents, several medications can produce nephrotoxicity. For example, uh, contrasts that we may use in CT scans or medications against like antivirals, for example, uh, aciclovir, or some antibiotics, okay, aminoglycosides, uh, beta-lactams, uh, NSAIDs, uh, or PPIs may produce uh, nephrotoxicity, not so frequently, but they can produce nephrotoxicity. And there are several mechanisms why this uh, might happen. For example, uh, aminoglycosides, uh, they are gonna enter the kidney cells in the tubules, and they are gonna be metabolized by the kidney, Okay, these drugs are going to enter in the lysosome, and they may produce damage to the lysosomes. 
Okay, and these uh, the lysosomal enzymes may get spread inside the cell, creating a very important damage to the cell structures, okay, decreasing the production of ATP. So the tubules, the, the, the cells of the tubules are gonna suffer and may undergo necrosis. Okay, something that we call acute tubular necrosis that we are gonna be seeing later. And in some cases, there is a combination, okay, because someone may go uh, to the ER with type of shock as a result of a pathology, and we may use a contrast for the diagnosis or give an antibiotic, and we may add uh, more kidney uh, damage to the one that was already present. Okay? Or sometimes the, the condition may be like a progression of one type of AKI to another. So in every patient is going to be a different, the, the, the specific presentation or mechanism. Okay, typically, uh, after we have a hypotensive shock, for example, we may have some type of mild kidney injury, and then there is going to be a, a recovery, okay, an adaptive process, and then regeneration of the kidney cells. Okay, in severe injuries, of course, the regeneration is not going to be complete, but it tries to repair, but you can make new nephrons if we lost them. So we simply put some collagen there and the kidney is going to have several scars, okay, diffuse scars, and they may enter into some stage of chronic kidney disease. Okay, the stages of chronic kidney disease will depend on the glomerular filtration rate that the patients have, okay, and typically decreases, 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 until they reach the final state, stage five, or end-stage renal disease, which is defined by having a very low GFR below 15, and patients need either dialysis or a kidney transplant. Okay, the injury may be severe if it's acute, okay, an accident with lots of bleeding, or receiving lots of nephrotoxic substances, or pe people may have some repeated or sustained injury in the kidneys, so the responses are not gonna be very good. Okay, the kidneys are gonna uh, react by producing an inflammatory reaction and may also be due to some autoimmune diseases, in the case of lupus, for example, with production of excessive collagen. And people will develop this progressive sclerosis of the glomerulus, the tubules, the interstitial space. And of course, the capacity for filtration is going to progressively decrease. Okay, here we have some of the risk factors. I put there some in bold letters, so you know what is, which are the most important ones. Okay, we are gonna see the classification later of AKI, and we are gonna be placing these risk factors or etiologic factors in context. Chronic kidney disease, of course. Someone has a chronic kidney disease, and then receive nephrotoxic medications, or go to surgery, or have hemorrhage. They are at a very high risk. People with different uh, nephropathies that also are part of the chronic kidney disease, like diabetic nephropathy or hypertensive nephropathy, heart failure, cardiac tamponade, MI, anything that decreases uh, acutely the cardiac output is going to lead to a reduction, sudden reduction in the blood supply to the kidneys. Okay, we are going to see how liver disease uh, appears in the context of this. Typically, liver disease will produce third spacing with the movement of fluids out of the circulation into the peritoneal cavity. 
So it's going to produce a lower effective circulating volume, okay, hypovolemia as a result of bleeding, nephrotoxins, obstruction or infection in the urinary tract. Okay, it's going to, when we were talking before, remember about the increased pressure in the Bowman's capsule. If someone has only one kidney and the ureter is blocked by a kidney stone, okay, it's impossible to make the urine pass. Increasing the pressure in the Bowman's capsule opposes filtration, so urination goes down, and all of these toxins accumulate in the blood. And we have surgery if it produces any complication. Okay, and age, every person that is older than 50 has a higher risk of acute kidney injury. Now, AKI is classified depending on the mechanism and the findings, the clinical findings, okay, into three types. One is called pre-renal, then we have the intrinsic or renal, and the post-renal or obstructive. Notice the different causes of these types of kidney injury. The ones we mentioned before, dehydration, hypotension, shock, CHF, diuretics, if they produce a, a, a dehydration or hypovolemia. Okay, this is a, a condition that is even not considered like kidney failure because if the patients only have a pre-renal AKI, when we reestablish the volemia, transfusion or fluids, etc., the kidney function goes back to normal. And if this has been there for a very short time, there is no, uh, not necessarily uh, any complication should appear. Okay? All will depend on for how long the kidney has been under this situation. Okay? And if there is necrosis or not of the cells. Okay? Then we have the renal. This is when the actual parenchyma of the kidney, either the glomeruli or the tubules or the interstitial space, have a damage and can be demonstrated either by the findings in the blood tests or by biopsy or by the findings in the urinalysis and microsco microscopic analysis of the urine. Okay, the most common of the intrinsic renal diseases producing AKI is ATN, acute tubular necrosis, that in some cases appears as a progression from the pre-renal to renal or intrinsic disease if the patient wasn't treated properly or didn't respond to treatment. Then we have some uh, other causes, glomerulonephritis, uh, some toxins like the medications or contrasts, or maybe poisons or any kind of substances that patients may take or inject themselves. Okay, so an interstitial nephritis. Notice that you have there a mention of three parts of the, of the kidney, the tubules, the glomerulus, and the interstitial. Okay, so there are glomerular diseases, tubular diseases, and interstitial diseases. Okay, also there are some diseases that may affect the blood vessels, like vasculitis. Okay, vasculitis are also a cause of acute kidney injury or may be a cause of chronic kidney disease. And the post-renal is the one that is obstructive. The classic example is benign prostatic hypertrophy. 
but also could be a person that has kidney stones and have only one working kidney. Okay, some people have two kidneys, but they don't know that one of them is not working. And they might realize it when they have an obstruction in one of them, the one that was working. So BPH, nephrolithiasis, or any extra renal, let's say an abdominal tumor that is compressing ureters bilaterally or, only, <coughs> or a single ureter in a person that has one kidney only, or one functional kidney. This uh, uh, post-renal or obstructive is the one that tends to present with anuria. Okay, no urination and maybe a distended bladder if the cause is the benign prostatic hypertrophy or with flank pain and the findings or the symptoms of nephrolithiasis, renal colic, for example, or fever, chills, if the cause is a pyelonephritis, some important infection that is severe enough to damage the kidneys and produce kidney failure. So here we have a very simple representation, okay? It doesn't uh, include all the possible causes of AKI, but simply for you to uh, try to imagine what is happening in a kidney, in the tubules, okay, when someone, for example, has a hemorrhagic shock, hypovolemic shock or septic shock, and the kidneys are not receiving enough blood. Okay, at the beginning, minutes after the injury, the cells look normal. Okay, notice that they have, they look very similar to the small intestine cells with these villi, because they are very absorptive cells, reabsorption of many things. So within minutes, nothing happens. Then hours later, we may treat this patient, maybe they responded well, maybe they didn't respond well. There is a reperfusion of the kidney. Notice how the first thing that happens is a loss of these absorptive uh, specializations of the cells, this villi, or microvilli in this case, this brush border. Okay, some days later, notice how the cells that had the damage now are being dislodged from there, either by necrosis or apoptosis. So we are losing the cells. That is what we call acute tubular necrosis. Okay, so here we may have a progression from the pre-renal AKI to the renal AKI. And then if the patient doesn't die, of course, the kidney should recover. Okay, we, we should start making new cells if we can, if we have the, the basement membrane of the tubules and we have a regenerative, regenerative capacity and we have good blood supply, nutrients, oxygen, etc. If not, well, simply we are going to put some collagen there and move on. Now, clinically, how we know if the patient, because we can be doing biopsies of the kidneys, or follow up with biopsy every six hours. That's something that we can do. Okay, but we have the blood tests. And you have there the findings in the pre-renal, intrinsic, and post-renal, AKI. And notice that the urine osmolality in the pre-renal is above 500. That means the kidneys are doing their job. They are not getting enough blood. So they are trying to retain water and sodium. That's what the normal kidney does when it doesn't receive too much blood. Okay, they produce 
uh, renin, aldosterone is, is released, so we start reabsorbing more sodium than usually. Antidiuretic hormone is working too, and it's taking water into the blood, so we're going to produce a very concentrated urine. Okay, high osmolality. If you move to the intrinsic and post-renal, you are going to see that the urine osmolality is low. Sometimes the same osmolality of the blood. In mind that we have a urine, a constant production of urine that is always 300. That is what we call isostenuria. That means the kidneys are not doing anything. And why they are not doing anything? Because they don't have how to do it, how to do it. There is an acute tubular necrosis. Where are we going to reabsorb any sodium? If we don't have microvilli, we don't have cells. And more, these cells that are dislodged there, they are going to accumulate in the tubules. Imagine all of the proximal tubule cells, necrotic cells that now start traveling in the loop of Henle, distal tubule, and enter the collecting duct. They will accumulate there, forming cylindric structures, brownish cylindric structures that we may call cylinders or casts, granular casts that we may see in the a microscopic analysis of the urine, and they represent, they are a sign of acute tubular necrosis. Okay. Other people may have, for example, glomerular disease, glomerulonephritis. In that case, there is no problem in the tubules. The problem is in the glomerulus. Glomerulus is damaged, so red blood cells are going to leak. Red blood cells are going to start traveling in the tubules, and we are going to enter in the collecting ducts, and are going to form the casts there. But now we don't have the granular, muddy brown casts. We have red blood cell casts, indicating glomerulonephritis. Okay, if you have a urinalysis or a microscopic analysis of the urine, and you see red blood cells, oh, that is hematuria. This probably is from the bladder, or from the ureters, if there is a kidney stone. But if you see casts, the cast doesn't come from the blood. The cast comes from the collecting ducts. So that means the damage is proximal to the collecting duct in the glomerulus. Now, what else besides the urine osmolality? Of course, if there is a post-renal and there is a total obstruction, we're not going to have any, any urine osmolality. We have no urine to analyze. Okay? Simply anuric. Uh, what about the urinary sodium? The same principle will apply here. If there is a pre-renal AKI, the kidneys are reabsorbing sodium as crazy. So the urinary sodium is going to be low because it stays in the blood. Kidneys are retaining it. When there is an acute tubular necrosis, kidneys don't reabsorb sodium. It will appear in the urine. So it's going to be elevated. And what about the other value, that is the fraction of excreted sodium. It's the same principle. Notice that the values are more or less the same, but in percentage. Less than 1% of the sodium that was filtrated appears in the urine, more than 2%, or even higher than that, in the intrinsic or in the post-renal. And it's the same principle. Is the tubule working or not? Okay, is responding to aldosterone or not? 
Okay, that sodium that doesn't appear in the urine is in the blood. And then we have another uh, important value that is the ratio between the BUN and the creatinine. And you're going to see how the same principle that we mentioned for the sodium applies to this. Okay, normally the kidneys reabsorbs 50% of the urea that is filtered. And normally we produce and excrete the creatinine at a constant rate. Uh, at a constant rate. Okay, it doesn't matter. Uh, well, see, creatinine can be altered by some values, for example, the muscle mass, the diet. But typically we have a very constant uh, normal value of creatinine. So what happens when someone has a pre-renal kidney injury? Let's say someone has hemorrhage and presents to the ER one hour after the hemorrhage. During this hour, the body has been producing aldosterone. Okay, the body has been producing epinephrine, antidiuretic. Okay, and the kidney has increased, very importantly, the reabsorption of everything that tries to move through the kidney, including urea. Okay, that's why we are going to have a very elevated urea, because we are reabsorbing it very fast. But we are not making more creatinine. Okay, and the kidneys are working fine, doing their job. So we are going to have a very high urea and maybe a normal or slightly elevated creatinine, but the ratio between both is going to be higher than 20. Now, if the kidneys are damaged, if the tubules are not working, and they are letting the sodium go and everything go, and the water go, and they are not concentrating urine, they are not going to reabsorb the urea. And they are not going to secrete the creatinine. So the urea is not going to be too high, and the creatinine is going to be higher. That's why the ratio, when there is an acute tubular necrosis, is going to be less than 10 to 15, and not higher than 20, as it happens in the pre-renal one. The post-renal is a something different we have to put there the, the clinical presentation okay of course if you have a ratio more than 20 and the patient has a BPH obviously this is a post renal if the patient is bleeding obviously this is a pre renal age history of the patient and the post renal may progress to intrinsic so the ratio may be may start going towards the 10 to 15 and the pre renal may progress to intrinsic and may also uh, achieve this value. So it's important to, doesn't matter what is the cause, uh, treat it immediately, either remove the, the obstruction or give fluids or medications or blood transfusions to solve this situation. So either or, the prerenal or the obstructive may progress to damage the kidney, okay, to intrinsic disease. So I think you can put together all that and just by looking at the blood tests, okay, and urinalysis, and if you see casts, etc., you can very easily say this is pre-renal, intra-renal, or post-renal. What is the likely cause? Bleeding, hypotension, or aminoglycosides, or acute tubular necrosis, okay, or simply obstruction in the case of a post-renal. 
And then you have different causes, okay? I put there three ta uh, tables, okay, to, for you to have a good differential <coughs> diagnosis. And, and notice this, uh, if you have a, an OSCE about this, okay, it's important to, with the information that you have, give a good differential diagnosis. Okay, if you have a 17-year-old in a car accident, you're not going to say BPH or, or something like that, okay, about, or any post-renal in your differential diagnosis, okay? So you have there some causes of pre-renal AKI, okay? Some of them with true volume depletion, hemorrhage or losses of fluid through different parts, cutaneous, renal, GI, diarrhea, vomiting, or some with decreased effective circulating volume, okay, like in heart failure, we have edema, for example, or cirrhosis, in which we have ascites, okay, nephrotic syndrome, that also produces a generalized edema, okay, hypotension, in which there is no volume loss, simply there is excessive vasodilation. So the blood is, instead of being in the renal arteries, is in the, in the arteries of the skin. Shouldn't be there. Okay, and sets, the bilateral renal artery stenosis. Notice that last part, okay, bilateral renal artery stenosis. You have a constriction bilateral of the, bilaterally of the renal artery. So now you have the afferent part narrow. Okay, the body, the only thing that the body can do is constrict the efferent to try to maintain the GFR. If we give AC inhibitors, we are opening up the efferent, so the blood enters through the efferent, goes away through the efferent without doing any filtration because there is no difference in pressure. Okay, so be careful with, and that is a very important piece of information for pharmacology medicine. Do not give AC inhibitors with, to patients with bilateral renal artery stenosis. Okay, what about the NSAIDs? Why they can produce uh, pre-renal AKI? Because they simply constrict the efferent, the afferent. Okay, no prostaglandins, the afferent constricts. This is intrinsic. Notice that you have there uh, different causes divided by structure in the kidney. You have vascular causes, you have glomerular, tubular and interstitial causes. Okay, there are some acute and chronic vascular causes. Okay, vasculitis or malignant hypertension, hypertensive nephropathy or nephrosclerosis are examples. Then you have the glomerular causes that we are gonna be studying in nephrology, glomerulonephritis or nephrotic syndrome. There are some acute causes of the tubular, of the tubules, ATN. I put there an asterisk in the ones that you have to pay more attention. We're going to be talking about them in the, in the nephrology part. Now, interstitial. That is one that is like uh, an adverse drug reaction, and instead of producing urticaria, produces nephritis. Okay, that is interstitial nephritis. It's drug-induced, and pyonephritis infection, the infectious agents that ascend from the bladder and enter the kidney. 
Friday on the Fridays can be chronic, or produce also uh, AKI, analgesic nephropathy. Okay, there is a spe specific type of uh, necrosis that can occur in the kidney. People receiving analgesics that will produce uh, both the interstitial nephritis and also necrosis of the papillae, the tip of these, um, the medulla in the kidney. And then you have obstructive there. Okay, there are different causes. For example, the BPH, obstructive uropathy. Remember, this can be also extrinsic compression, a tumor in the abdominal cavity. Okay, can compress also the urethra, malignancies, nephrolithiasis. Some medications may produce a functional uh, obstruction. Or people that have a neurogenic bladder, people with diabetes, that develop the diabetic autonomic neuropathy that may affect the bladder, may affect the intestines, may affect the stomach. And renal vein thrombosis will produce obstruction. That is in the vein. Okay, the renal artery stenosis is in the entry part, this is in the exit part. And here, uh, this diagram tries to put together different factors, not only the ones that we mentioned. Okay, because I want you to have the complete idea of how other things may either cause or worsen, okay, that a, a patient with AKI. Okay, because if we have only one of these factors, they are very easy to treat. But if we have a combination, the treatment is going to be uh, complicated. Okay, you have in blue the different etiological risk factors. Okay, for example, on the top left, you have nutritional problems, liver disease, kidney disease, and inflammation. Okay, these things, for example, having a bad nutrition or liver disease is going to decrease the synthesis of albumin. If we have a kidney disease like nephrotic syndrome, they're going to start losing albumin. Okay, so these two things will produce hypoalbuminemia. Okay, low albumin in the blood means we have a low oncotic pressure, so we can't retain uh, water. Okay, there is going to be movement of fluid and albumin into the extracellular compartment. Okay, this may also happen when someone has a chronic inflammatory condition or an acute inflammatory condition, there is increased vascular permeability. If this is generalized, fluid and albumin are going to move to the extracellular compartment. That means edema. So we are going to have less blood volume because the, all this fluid is moving to third space. Okay, low blood volume is going to represent low blood pressure. What can also produce low blood pressure? Well, heart failure. You have there to the right, decreased cardiac output, low blood pressure. What about dehydration, hemorrhage, diuretics, diarrhea, decreased fluid intake? We are losing fluid, so we are going to have a decrease in the venous return. Low venous return means low preload, low stroke volume, low cardiac output, and low blood pressure. What about increased intra-abdominal pressure, let's say by a tumor, or by ascites, or by pregnancy? Okay, the same. We are going to compress the inferior venal cable. So the blood is going to have it very hard to enter to the, enter the heart. 
Now, what else? We have here on the left side drugs, vasodilatory drugs, NSAIDs, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, vasodilators, open up the blood vessels, decreasing the vascular resistance. Okay, we have low vascular resistance, the blood pressure drops. NSAIDs, we already mentioned that. Okay, decreasing the prostaglandins. Closes the afferent arteriole, decreases the dilation of the afferent arteriole. AC inhibitors block angiotensin II effects. Okay, so we're gonna open up the efferent, blood will go away. Decrease efferent arteriole constriction. So decrease blood pressure and these changes in the afferent and efferent arterioles will decrease the renal perfusion. And you have there other factors that can decrease the renal perfusion. For example, renal artery constriction. Okay, that will happen if the patient has hypercalcemia or due to an increase in the circulating catecholamines. Or if a patient has a renal artery stenosis by physically decreasing the diameter. Atherosclerosis or fibromuscular dysplasia, that is hyperplasia of the muscular layer. So notice how, because the patients, when they come, they don't have a single thing. At least in, in generally speaking, no? Young person, healthy per person that's bleeding, of course, they have only one thing. They are easy to treat, they recover, everything is fine, everybody's happy. But when you have a patient that is receiving medications and has diabetes for 30 years and doesn't have the best nutrition and the liver is also affected and is taking NSAIDs for this and this for that, and diuretics, okay, and have some AFib, and you notice that they also have hypercalcemia, and then patient is stressed and the catecholamines go up. This when things get complicated. Okay, so if you start putting together how many things can get wrong, you don't want to work in medicine anymore. So, <laughs> so if you don't want to look at that. <laughs> Our more pathophysiology here, uh, this represents uh, other uh, factors okay, that will end up producing the acute tubular necrosis, okay, more intrinsic factors in the kidney. Okay, notice that this starts with the hypoxia in the renal medulla, okay, hypoxia because of the decreased blood supply. Okay, that will end up with a, an increased delivery of sodium to the macula densa, leading to an increase in the renal arteriolar vasoconstriction. Okay, it's going to produce a release of uh, different mediators, for example, prostaglandins, adenosine, nitric oxide. Okay, uh, ischemia is also going to produce a damage in the renal tubular cells, lack of oxygen, they don't produce ATP. Sodium increases inside the cells. There is an increase in the intracellular calcium, rearrangement in the cytoskeleton. Okay, with this uh, increased release of prostaglandins, adenosine nitric oxide will increase the medullary blood flow. Okay. So there is going to be an increase in the amount of oxygen there, that may help, it's what we call reperfusion, 
Okay, probably the process can stop there. Okay, and then we will have a recovery. But if these mechanisms don't work, we are going to end up having the AKI. Okay, there is ischemia that induces this cytoskeletal arrangement. The cells change the polarity. They start dislodging from the basement membrane. They start undergoing necrosis. Okay, they lose the adhesion to the basement membrane, and they attach to each other. They form these casts in the tubules. They take the shape of the tubule. If there is a further damage, notice that they are indicating here complicating factor, take, patients taking NSAIDs, or there is a myoglobin precipitation. Imagine a patient that has something called rhabdomyolysis, okay, breakage of yeah. cells in the muscles with release of myoglobin that will precipitate in the kidneys, increasing the kidney injury, or the patient has a multiple myeloma, and they have Benz Jones proteins. Okay, the multiple myeloma is plasma cells producing tons and tons and tons of immunoglobulins that may also damage the kidney. All this combination of things will produce the AKI. Okay, sometimes we may regenerate the kidney depending on the, the time that the patient has been, has been exposed to that. Or may enter into chronic kidney failure, irreversible kidney failure. And in this slide, we have the explanation of the oliguria in a patient with AKI. Okay, either pre-renal, intra-renal, and post-renal. In the pre-renal, it's easy to understand. Okay, the hypoperfusion leads to a decrease in the GFR. We have an increase in the sodium and water reabsorption. Aldosterone helps, ADH helps. So all the fluid and the sodium and the urea that we normally eliminate is now retained in the blood. And of course, oliguria is something that we desire in that moment. It's a normal response of the organism to fluid loss. Now, what about the intrarenal and the post-renal? Okay, in the center, you have the intrarenal. Necrosis, apoptosis of the renal cells, forming casts. Multiple casts in many of these nephrons are going to block the production of urine. There is an intratubular obstruction, increasing the intratubular pressure. Remember, this is going to be reflected in the Bowman's capsule hydrostatic pressure. Okay, there can be even a tubular back leak. That literally means urine going back to the blood. Okay. And there is going to be a reduction in the GFR, and we're going to see oliguria. Okay, we don't filtrate. And in the post-renal, there is an obstruction to the urine flow, increasing the intraluminal pressure, damaging the, lumen, the, the lumens. There are going to be some inflammation, okay, inflammatory mediators, endothelial, and tubular cell injury. These inflammatory mediators are going to produce a renal vasoconstriction, producing hypoxia, and leading to renal tubular injury. Okay, remember I told you, either from pre-renal or from post-renal, you can progress to intra-renal. Okay? Okay, and that's going to, uh, well, the interstitial cell edema, 
they, the cells have edema and have damage. Of course, they don't filtrate anything. anything. There is a decrease in the uh, GFR and oliduria. And we mentioned uh, interstitial nephritis before. I told you that it was like a adverse drug reaction okay, in the kidneys. People with interstitial nephritis typically have a rash, they have fever, and they have eosinophilia. Okay, exactly as when we have allergic reactions of other types. Okay, people taking, for example, sulfonamides, penicillins, NSAIDs, some other medications. Okay, we'll present with this. Remember, you have to have the AKI. Okay, not simply because they have a rash, fever, eosinophilia, we say interstitial nephritis. We need to see the findings of acute kidney injury. Okay, some people with other conditions, vasculitis, diabetes mellitus, sickle cell anemia, and some other, uh, for example, transplant or renal transplant rejection may present with this. But the most common okay, is the drug-related. Okay, there are some examples of vasculitis. This is not something that we are going to be developing today. Okay, but the, in these types of vasculitis, okay, some of them are rheumatologic conditions. Okay, some others are more hematologic conditions. We are going to see specific findings, specific autoantibodies that are typical of these conditions. Okay, and then you have other uh, causes. Okay, we are going to be talking more in detail in another lecture about glomerulonephritis or glomerular disease that is subdivided into nephrotic or nephritic syndrome. I'm gonna dedicate an entire, an entire lecture to that. And we have to mention rhabdomyolysis. Okay, rhabdomyolysis is muscular injury Okay, that may occur, for example, after consumption of different substances like cocaine or some other uh, prescription or non-prescription or illegal drugs, or after excessive exercise, excessive, excessive, okay, or simply after, after a crash, injury, accidents, okay, and this uh, rupture of the muscle fibers we lead to a release of myoglobin. That is a molecule that is very similar to hemoglobin. Storage of oxygen for the muscle instead of for the blood. Okay, this protein will accumulate in the kidneys, producing ischemia and obstruction. Okay, there you have some examples of uh, causes. Excessive exertion, cocaine, prolonged immobilization, glucocorticoids, anti-malarials. And uh, we diagnose it, well, people are, these patients are gonna have a diffuse muscle pain, a past history of excessive exercise or any of the risk etiologic factors. Notice that the serum creatinine is gonna be above 5,000. And something more interesting is, if you do analyze the urine with dipstick, it's gonna be positive. But if you look at the urine under the microscope, there are no red blood cells. So it's positive dipstick 
in the absence of hematuria. Because the dipstick actually doesn't assess for blood. Actually, what it looks, like, uh, looks for is hemoglobin to tell you that there is blood. And it doesn't differentiate between hemoglobin and myoglobin. Okay, that's why it's positive, and patients don't have any blood in the urine. Um, let's finish this, and so we don't leave a slide for the next day. The post-renal is easy to identify in the vignette. Okay, the patient with BPH or two more, or only one kidney and kidney stone, they are going to appear with oliguria or anuria, distended abdomen, and distended bladder. Okay, they may develop hydronephrosis. If they are not treated, hydronephrosis take, takes 24 hours to develop. So acutely, they are not going to have anything in the kidneys. Kidneys might be normal. Okay, if they have hydronephrosis bilateral, that means more than 24 hours have passed from the beginning of the total obstruction. Okay, and you saw uh, before the mechanism from post-renal to intra-renal. There is an intra-renal vasoconstriction leading to tubular injury as a result of this ischemia that may progress to fibrosis, of course, more chronically. Fibrosis doesn't occur in a couple of days. And if not treated properly, this may end to, or may produce end-stage renal disease. It's the late stage of chronic kidney disease. Okay, and urea is less than 50 milliliters of urine in 24 hours. Okay, that represents obstruction or acute cortical necrosis or bilateral renal artery stenosis. Notice that the presence of anuria only doesn't tell you that there is a post-renal. Okay, you have to see also the distended bladder. You have to see other findings. And we have one week to relieve the obstruction. That's good news. Huh? It's not like the brain that dies in five minutes. Then we have one week to save the kidney. And see you on Thursday. Okay? Thank you. <laughs> Always in huh? We're always impressed. <laughs> yeah.